weeks, we've been studying the subject, Oh, to be like thee. And I base the title of the message on Paul's words in chapter 5, verse number 1, where he says, Be ye followers of God as dear children. And the word followers in that verse is the same word from which we get imitators. It means uh, to mimic someone. And so the message of that first verse in Ephesians 5 is that we are to be imitators of God. And you may remember that on uh, at least two or three occasions in our study of the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, I've talked about the the uh, subject of being an imitator of Jesus Christ. And I hope that no one misunderstands what we mean when we say this, because there are so many ways that we are not able to imitate Christ. I mean, there are things that Christ could do that we certainly can't do. But then there are other things that we can look at his life and we can build our lives after him. And that's what Paul is talking about. And the only way that we can actually build our lives after Christ is in areas where the Holy Spirit is working through us to do that. Paul is speaking here in chapter 5, in the last part of chapter 4, about the characteristics of Christ being reproduced in us. And in the end of that fourth chapter, he tells us that we are to be tender-hearted, we're to forgive one another as Christ forgave. Then he comes to chapter 5, and he talks, us, talks uh, to us about walking in love as Christ loved us. And then he goes on to say in verse number 2, that Christ has given himself for us, that he is a sacrificial offering, and the offering that Christ made is one that is pleasing to God. Now, this evening, in the third part of this message, I want to speak about that offering of Christ, and I want to explain how that it accomplished exactly what God intended for it to do. Christ and the Heavenly Father had a plan when Christ came, and Christ did everything that the Father required, and his sacrifice never falls short of what God intended it to be. Well, let's stand, if you would, please, and we'll read these first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5. Verse number 1 says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings that you give. And Lord, we just um, praise your name for your faithfulness to us and how you're always watching out for us and how much that you love us. Lord, we, we are saddened by news that we've heard about Eric and Lucy. And Lord, we just pray that you might bless them tonight, be with them. And Lord, we're just so thankful for the confidence that they have in their church and in you as well, Lord, that you always do things well. And this is what we'll be talking about tonight. In your sacrifice, you were well-pleasing to God, and we thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want to give you just a quick review of the two previous messages, since this is part number three of the sermon. Uh, In the first part, we talked about the revelation of God's character. And we learned in that particular part of the sermon that God has two different types of attributes. He has natural attributes, and these are things that are in the character of God and in the being of God that they're not able to be passed along to us. We can't be like God in those ways. But there's also another uh, area of God's attributes called his moral attributes. And those are the things that Paul has in mind when he speaks about being an imitator of God. Those are ways in which we can pattern our lives after and look to the example of Christ. And we can cultivate those different moral attributes that Christ possesses. And things that we ought to try to, to do in our life is to have the kind of love that Christ had, to have the compassion 
that he had mercy and forgiveness and many, many different things that, that Christ did in his life and an example that he lived before us that we can learn to be like him. Then in the second part of the message, we talked about the imitation of God's children. And there we discussed that uh, how God has adopted us as his children. And mostly in that sermon, we talked about the benefits that we receive from God's adoption. Uh, We received the benefits of God's nature, of his image, his name, his love, his spirit, his inheritance. And because we've received all those things from God... We talked about how that every one of us ought to be appreciative of what God has done for us. And certainly we ought to thank the Lord that he's taken us as his children. And being children of God, we need to be in such a relationship to him that in all areas of our life, all that we do, we want to be pleasing to him and we don't bring reproach upon the Heavenly Father. But now we want to go on tonight and we want to look at another truth that's taught in this passage. And one, in fact, which is is very important for us. us to understand. We're going to talk about the satisfaction of God's Christ. Paul tells us that Christ gave himself for us and that his offering was a sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God. And the offering that Jesus made for us was indeed a unique offering because in no other instance do we see uh, a sacrifice and the offer being one and the same. But that's exactly what Christ is. He is both the sacrifice and he is the high priest that makes the offering. You're very well aware as we looked in the Old Testament and studied uh, the tabernacle offerings that the priest would take a bullock or he would take a lamb or some other uh, clean animal and he would take that and he would offer it for the sacrifice. But Christ has made a different kind of sacrifice because in no other case is the one who offers and the offering one and the same. So Christ is both our sacrifice and our great high priest. Well, this evening, I'd like to talk to you about this atoning sacrifice of Christ. We're going to speak about the atonement tonight. And the word atonement means to come to agreement or, or to reconcile from enmity. To come to agreement or reconcile from enmity. That's what we mean when we talk about the atonement. And I can tell you before we even get started with this this evening that the means by which Christ or God reconciled us to himself is one of heated debate and argument. This is a a subject that people don't agree on and they fight over all the time exactly how did this take place. Well, our church doctrine is that uh, God has reconciled a man uh, to himself by placing upon Christ the punishment that was due for our sins. Christ actually became a substitutionary sacrifice for us, and Christ's sacrifice was real satisfaction to God's law. Now, when we say it was substitutionary and it's real satisfaction, then we also believe that this sacrifice was one in which the people for whom it was made are really reconciled, are really redeemed to God. Now, that means then that the atonement of Christ could only extend to those who were, are now, or will be, in fact, saved, redeemed, and reconciled to God. 
Now, understanding the correct view of the atonement uh, uh, helps us to understand better how that salvation comes to man. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that's more important than the atonement. That is the very central issue of what the Bible is all about. And everything in the Bible either looks back to, uh, forward to the atonement or looks back on the atonement that's taken place. The Old Testament scriptures are written to tell us that the sacrifice is coming, that the atonement is going to be made. And the New Testament is written to explain to us how the sacrifice did come, how it has been made, and what Christ has done for us in that sacrifice. So everything in the Bible points to the atonement. Well, this evening... It'd be impossible for me to give you a full exposition of the atonement of Christ because if that is the core of Christianity and all the Bible speaks of the atonement, well, you can see I'm not going to have time to deal with every aspect of the atonement. Everything that we do in church is consumed with this thought of the atonement. So every time that I get up to preach, even though I might not ever even mention the word as I'm speaking, yet everything that we do here is somehow directly or indirectly related to what Christ did on the cross and the atoning sacrifice that he made to Christ. And if we don't talk about that, if we don't tie all things to that, then there's no point of us even being here. It's what Christ did on the cross is the whole reason that we're even here talking about this tonight. So we're going to look at some different things concerning the atonement. I want to start this evening by talking to you about the nature of the atonement. What is it, uh, the elements that are involved in the atonement? What things does this contain? Well, there are actually four areas that define the nature of the atonement. First of all, the atonement is sacrifice for sin. It's sacrifice for sin. Well, sin is described as the transgression of God's law. And, of course, the law of God would concern anything uh, that governs the moral universe. Now, the Bible teaches us that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. And so that means that all of us, every person in the world, is a sinner against God. All of us have fallen short of what uh, what God wants us to be. We've all missed the mark. And that's what sin has the meaning as, as well, as missing the mark. And breaking God's law means that everyone in the world has incurred guilt... We've incurred uh, this guilt and we're guilty because we've broken God's law. And because we're guilty, that requires a corresponding punishment. Well, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were made as a representative way of taking away guilt. Now, that, uh, what explains that, a word that you use to explain that is the word expiation. Uh, If we say that the atonement was to make expiation or to expiate sin, what that means is that the atonement was designed to take away the guilt of sin. And in order for Christ's sacrifice to take away the guilt of our sin, our sin somehow and our guilt has to be transferred to Christ. Somehow God has to allow the innocent Christ to take that guilt for us and to become guilty for us. And in fact, that's exactly what the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the scripture says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, His own self, who his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. And so the first area in the nature of the atonement is that it involves the taking away of our guilt, and that's done by sacrifice. 
The second area that we're concerned with in the nature of the atonement is the appeasement of wrath. And the biblical term for that is the word propitiation. So we had expiation first, and now we have propitiation. And the Bible tells us that God is angry because of sin. And the way that God takes his anger out is through vengeance. God hates sin, and so God has determined that he's going to reach out and he's going to punish the offenders. And in order for God's wrath to be turned away from us, God has to be placated. God must be appeased. And the atonement is the way in which God is placated or appeased because of his vengeance and his wrath against sin. And it's Christ's work on the cross that has enabled that wrath to be set aside. See, what God has done, he's turned his wrath towards Christ because Jesus has taken our sins upon himself, upon the cross. And so God's wrath is turned away from us and all of his wrath is directed towards the sacrifice who is Christ. And so when our sins were, were placed upon on Christ, the wrath was turned away. He's the one who bears the sin. And what Christ has done is to make a covering for us. Now, the word propitiation also means that uh, Christ makes a covering. So the wrath of God is turned away from us because we're covered for our sins. Now, the idea of appeasement. Appeasing the wrath of God is very important as we discuss other areas of the atonement because if God's wrath has been turned aside, if the atonement really does turn away God's wrath, then that means that anyone who is covered under the atonement cannot be punished for their sins. Well, the third area involved in the nature of the atonement is the restoration of fellowship, and that we call reconciliation. And it's very important for us to understand how that man needs to be reconciled to God because the spiritual link between God and man was broken when Adam fell in the garden. And the break runs in two different directions. We need to be reconciled to God and God must be reconciled to us. We are alienated from God and also God is alienated from man. And the cause of that alienation, of course, is is man's sin. And what sin has done in us is to produce a moral character in which we are at unholy enmity with God and God is at holy enmity against us. Now, the thing that people uh, most misunderstand about the, about the removal of the uh, enmity by the atonement is that they think that this mainly focuses upon us, that our enmity with God is the thing that needs to be taken care of first. And so they say, well, our enmity has to be removed so that we no longer hate God and so that we no longer despise fellowship with God. But the actual focus of the atonement and reconciliation is towards God first and not towards man. Now, what God has done through the atonement and in reconciliation, he's removed the enmity, which is the sin. And he did that by, again, placing that upon Christ. And so, first of all, we have to consider reconciliation from God to man rather than man to God. Now, I think we could readily see that in what happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, he lost his fellowship with God, and there was no way that Adam could could repair that. There was not a thing that Adam could do to put himself into a position where God could have fellowship with him again. And so what did God do? Well, God took animals. He slew those animals, and he clothed the nakedness of Adam, and that that covering, that... uh, uh, those, those skins that he put upon him and covering that nakedness sha- uh, overshadowed or covered the sin that Adam had created against God. And so then fellowship or committed against God. And so now fellowship could be restored. 
Then the fourth area is redemption from bondage. And another word that aptly describes redemption in the proper terms is the word ransom. Because redemption is the payment of a price and it ransoms a person who is in the bondage of sin. Now, the way that the atonement and redemption is pictured in the scriptures is that it is a payment of a price. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, that idea becomes clear to us because it says there, for as, much, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, or not with that type of commodity, you are not redeemed with those things from your vain conversation tradi- received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we have a payment here that was to pay the price to buy us out of bondage. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, several months ago, I explained to you uh, four different words that we find in the Greek that are used for redemption. I don't have time to go back through that tonight. But whenever we see the word redemption, when it refers to the atonement or refers to the soul's redemption, uh, uh, when we see the word ransom used in that way, it's always talking about the payment of a price. The connection is always there is a price that is to be paid. So the atonement then is the actual payment of sin's penalty. Now, the interesting thing about this is that when the word ransom is used in 1 Timothy, that it actually means there a corresponding price. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, Paul said, "...who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time." And what that verse means is that Christ's death was an exact corresponding price for sin. Now, sometimes we talk about when when Christ was suffering on the cross that he took our hell for us. Well, don't misunderstand what we mean by that because that doesn't mean that Christ literally went into hell himself to suffer for us. It doesn't mean that. But what it means is that on the cross that Jesus was able to suffer in an equivalent manner what we would have to suffer if we were to go to hell. And and Christ was able to do that in infinite capacity because he's the God-man. Now, nobody else could, could, could have done that. But Jesus Christ being God and being infinite, he could suffer infinite punishment. And so he suffered on the cross an equivalent amount of suffering that we would have to suffer if we would have to go to hell. Now, that is a very important point, and I want you to stay with me on this because I want you to connect it all. If the payment of price, uh, or of the death of Christ, is an exact corresponding price, and if it really does appease the wrath of God, just like we discussed a moment ago, then it could only be done for those who are in heaven. Otherwise, God would be satisfied, God would be appeased, he would have had the price paid for people who are now suffering in hell. Now, there's no justice in God demanding a corresponding price and a corresponding price being paid, and yet God still requiring that same price to be paid from the guilty sinner. That can't be justice. 
So that's just a brief discussion of the nature of the atonement. But I want to go on to the second part, which I think is, is the one that we really need to nail home tonight and understand very well, and that's the extent of the atonement. And this is where the real battle lines are drawn over this issue because the extent of the atonement brings up the discussion and the question that people ask, for whom did Christ die? And there are two basic views about the atonement. The first one is a general atonement. And what a general atonement means is that Christ died for every single person as much for one as he did for any other. And under that theory, then the death of Christ makes salvation only a possibility. In other words, what Christ has has done is not to die for any particular individual, but what he's done is to die to make salvation simply possible for us. Or he's put man into a salvable state, but he never secured the salvation of any particular individual. And so in order for a person to be saved, to to actually be saved, something else has to be added to it. And the thing that's needed, most people will say, is faith has to be added to that, or uh, faith plus a person's work has to be added to that in order to make the atonement work for them. Now, what I would like to submit to you tonight is that the atonement is not for potential salvation. It's not possibility salvation. It's not potential salvation. Now, potential salvation would mean that Christ died to provide a basis by which we could uh, be given salvation and that God simply offers salvation to a, a potential group of customers. And it means that God has no particular person in mind uh, when, it, when Christ went to the cross. And when he made the sacrifice, not one single individual what was on his mind as he did that. And so what Christ has done is he suffered the same for people that are in heaven and suffered the, uh, the same thing that he's paid for for people that are in hell. So people in hell have their sins as much paid for through the atonement as any person that dies and goes to heaven. Well, we've already seen that that can't be correct because the definition of the atonement is that it's satisfaction for sin. The price has been paid. God has been appeased. His wrath has been set aside. And it's also we've learned here that the atonement is an exact corresponding price. So if the atonement is all of those things, it wouldn't be justice for God to put people in hell if atonement has been made for them. Now, some object to that, and they say, well, okay, I understand what you're saying, but the only sin that a person is actually condemned for is the sin of unbelief. God has paid for all of his sins. When Christ went to the cross, he paid for the sins of all alike, and the only thing that Christ didn't take care of is this sin of unbelief. Now, I suppose that that would be the impetus then for people believing that in order for you to be saved, then all you need to do is to repent of the sin of unbelief. And so they say, well, it's not necessary to repent of all of your sins. That's already been taken care of. And so the only thing that's going to send you to hell is the sin of unbelief. Well, that involves these folks in a conundrum because if they don't believe, if they have unbelief and... uh, I don't think any of us would would say that unbelief is not a sin. Unbelief, to be an unbelief is a sin. And if Christ didn't die for all all sin, then he didn't and didn't pay for the sin of unbelief, how is anybody ever going to be saved? And if Christ did pay for all sin except the sin of unbelief, then how is anybody going to be saved? I mean, it, it can't it can't happen that way. And so you have people that are in hell even though all of their sins have been paid for. Now, 
you see there's a problem here. Because if Christ didn't die for the sin of unbelief, then he didn't die for all sin. And the sin that all people are involved in all over the world is the sin of unbelief. Wrap your head around that a minute. I mean, it's, you have to think about that for a second. Now, the real problem here is the misunderstanding of the depravity of man. Man is so radically altered by the fall that he's lost all of his ability to do righteously and to come to God in repentance and faith. Man will not trust God because it's no longer in his nature to do that. And the only way that a person will ever trust Christ is if God awakens him from spiritual death and he brings him into spiritual life. And of course, we've talked about that on numerous occasions. We looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and also in that same chapter, verses 11 through 13. Then we looked at Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19, and we could not escape the conclusion that the only way that a person could ever come to Christ is if God first speaks to him and brings him to life so that he can believe. So those passages, with all, and coupled with all the other things that we find written in the New Testament, show us the utter impossibility possibility of man coming to God without divine intervention first. So the problem here then is if the atonement is general and what we have is a potential salvation, it wouldn't do us any good because we don't have any potential towards God. We have no way to come to him. And so if God just simply dangles out here in front of us the carrot of eternal life and says, just come and get it. Anybody who wants to come, you can come and get it. Well, that would be useless because nobody can go and get it. We don't have the ability to do that because we're dead in our trespasses and sin. But on the other hand, what happens if God takes away the blindness from our eyes? And what happens if God raises us from spiritual death and then he gives us the gospel of Christ? What happens then? Well, now we'll trust him because then we have the ability to trust him. We didn't have the ability before. But has God done that with all people? Well, we know that God hasn't because there are vast numbers of people that hear the gospel being preached and they don't believe in Christ. And there are many, many more people all over the world who've never even heard of Christ. And so people die every day where the gospel has never been preached. And so if Christ is only a potential savior and the atonement has been made for every single person, then you could readily see that more suffering has been put on Christ than is necessary. God has unjustly put upon Christ the sins of people who will never believe, and he's caused him to pay a higher price than would needed to be paid. Well, where's the justice in that? God is a just God. Now, here's the thing about it, though. If God is under obligation to provide an atonement for all men, if he's under obligation to do so then he is just as obliged to give that person all the spiritual abilities and capabilities that he needs to come to Christ. Now, let me give you an example of this. What if God had decided to wait until the end of time to send Christ to make an atonement? Now, we know that Christ waited 4,000 years before he came into the world, and all of the Old Testament saints who were believers, uh, they were covered under that atonement. But let's suppose now that the world is going to end tomorrow and God has waited till the end of time to send Christ and he's going to make a sacrifice and make atonement for sin. Who would that sacrifice be made for? Well, would it be made for all those people that have already died and and didn't believe in Christ and are right now in hell? Would Christ make a sacrifice for them? Well, what 
point would it be? What good would it do them at all? It wouldn't do them any good because they couldn't avail themselves of that, of that atoning sacrifice. Well, did Christ make atonement then for all of those heathens that died in the Old Testament period before Christ ever came and actually made the atonement 4, 000, after 4,000 years of human history? Well, if Christ died for those that were already in hell, then you can see, again, there's no justice in this because God has placed more upon Christ. He's inflicted useless pain upon him. Now, remember that the atonement is an exact corresponding price. So Christ need not pay for any more sins that are actually atoned to bring people to God. Now, the Scripture, as you read Scripture, it always puts it in these terms that those for whom the atonement has been made are, in fact, actually really redeemed. They are really ransomed. They are really going to heaven. And that's the only way that the atonement is ever spoken of in Scripture. So I would say to you that the atonement is not for potential salvation. The atonement is for those who will actually be redeemed. So it's not for potential salvation, but we can say that it is for perfect salvation. The atonement is for perfect salvation. And I say that because it accomplishes exactly what it was designed to do. The atonement was designed to save. And in fact, that's what it does. It saves. And if I could put it to you simply, the atonement works. God designed the atonement to work, and it does. Now, the first theory of the atonement was general atonement. And uh, I propose to you that the Bible does not teach a general atonement, but it teaches particular redemption. Now, some people call that limited atonement. And people will jump up in arms and they say, limited atonement? What are you talking about? The atonement, it can't be limited. That can't be right. Well, the fact is that everybody believes in a limited atonement. It just depends on who you think limits it. You see, they just have a different idea about who limits the atonement. Now, to them, to everybody else who who believes in a general atonement, they believe that man actually limits the atonement. God doesn't have any say in this. And not unless God, man joins God in cooperation does the atonement actually work. So God doesn't have any say. Man makes the decision about whether the atonement is going to work or not work for him. And so what they do is they limit the atonement in its efficacy. Now, I say that God has limited the atonement not in its efficacy, but because it's completely efficacious. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. So I believe that God has limited the atonement in its scope. See, the atonement is intended for all who are actually reconciled to God. Now, I think a better name for that is particular redemption because everybody believes in a limited atonement. The only people that don't believe in limited atonement are universalists, and they believe that everybody's going to be saved anyway, so there's not, they're not concerned about the issue of the atonement like we are. They think it's made for all people, and everybody will be saved. Well, particular redemption is the only way that matches all of the considerations. Man is totally depraved. He has no possibility of coming to Christ And God awakens the sinner to life so that he might believe, and those that believe are the ones for whom the atonement's been made. Now, what God has done, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is to unconditionally elect men to salvation so that there's no goodness in them that God looks for, 
Now, don't, be, don't misunderstand what unconditional election means. It simply means that God looked at man and he saw no reason to choose him. Didn't see any goodness in him. He didn't see any faith that he would have as a reason to choose him. But God simply chose people for his own pleasure. It was his own decision. Now, if God has elected people before the foundation of the world, then the sacrifice that Christ made was intended for those people. Now, I want you to understand that that's the only way that you don't devalue the worth of the atonement. You can never make the atonement more valuable by its failure. Only by its success is the atonement valuable. And so if you say, well, the atonement failed to save all these people out here, then you have a devalued atonement. But if we say that the atonement absolutely saved everybody that it's intended to save, then it's the most valuable atonement that you can have because it did exactly what God designs. Now we have to remember then, who is this that makes all of this happen? The person who makes it happen is God and God's an omniscient being. He's not bound by anything the creature does. He, he's not, he doesn't have to answer to anything that we say. He does exactly what he wants to do. And so nobody can say that in order for God to save any, then God must save all. If we put that restriction upon it, then you remove grace completely from the occasion, from the, from the, from the situation, because now God is obligated to man. Now people say, well, this isn't fair. I don't like what you're saying because now I don't have a chance to be saved. Well, a chance would never do anybody any good because people are dead in their sins. And so if God was going to give a chance for everybody to be saved, and, and that's what man needs, then God's going to have to supply everything that goes with that. And now if fairness is in view in that kind of a, of a scenario, then God has to save everybody. If we're looking at fairness in that way, God has to save everybody. But again, we know that he hasn't. God has sovereignly decreed that he's going to pass over some. He's going to leave some to their just deserts and their sins, and they'll die and go to hell. Now, fairness would mean, if we want to keep God fair in all things, be careful what you ask for. If you ask God to be fair, then everybody's going to go to hell. That's what fairness does. Now, the remarkable thing about this is, it's not that God saves some. That's not the mystery of salvation. The mystery is that God saves anybody. That's the whole thing. Now, I already know this. There's objections to this. The first thing that fundamentalists cry out is, well, what you're preaching then is that God has created some people simply to send them to hell. If unconditional election is true, if particular redemption is true, then God has created multitudes of people for one purpose only, and that's to condemn them to the fires of hell. Well, again, let's not forget who we're talking about here because if you want to make that kind of charge, then that charge would hold true whether or not there is particular redemption or whether or not there is an election. Because if anything, God knows everything. He's an omniscient God. Before the world was ever created, he knew exactly the exact number of people. He knew the names of all the people. He knew every situation and he knew exactly who would be in hell. Now, so... If that's true, and I think we have to admit it, that God is an omniscient being and he knows it all, then that would also mean that God created a hell knowing that people are going to be there. So you don't solve anything at all by throwing out election. You don't solve anything by throwing out particular redemption. What you do, though, is you throw out the power and the might of God and his sovereignty to do exactly what he wants to do with man. It puts man in charge of his own salvation. 
So if God had to wait upon the decision of man before the atonement works, then he has no plan, he has no purpose for the world, and it's possible that Christ could have come and not one single person in the world would have ever believed in him. That's what happens when you have only possibility to sal- a possibility to salvation. It has to be more than that. So the only way that Paul can state here that the sacrifice of Christ is a sweet-smelling savor to God is that Christ had to do what both he and the Father intended for him to do. Now, don't you know, though, that that is exactly what the Bible says? And that's what Jesus said himself. Jesus answered the question, who did I die for? He answers the question. Turn to John chapter 17 very quickly, and we'll look at it right here. We studied this a few, uh, a few weeks ago on Sunday morning. But here, uh, Jesus, in his own words, tells us exactly who he died for. John 17, verse number 1. Then uh, it says, These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life, and you need to underline the next phrase, to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. You can't mistake from those verses that the work that God gave Christ to do was to save those that were given to him by the Father. So those are the ones that he came to save, and those are the ones that he died to redeem. So I'm glad that God has not provided potential salvation. He's given us perfect salvation. And I'm glad that when Jesus went to the cross, that he had me on his mind. And he never wondered, not even for a single second, did he ever wonder, what's Mark Smith going to do? How's he going to react to this message? I sure hope that this sacrifice does him some good. Never once did Christ ever think like that. When Jesus went to the cross, my name was already graven on the palms of his hands. And when they nailed those nails through his hands, his, that nail went right through my name as it fastened him to that cross. So Christ made the sacrifice for me, and he reconciled me to God. It was personal substitution for me as he hung on the cross. There was nothing hypothetical about that. There was nothing potential about it. It never depended on any action that I would do. It all depended upon what Christ would do and what God would do. And that's the only way that we can say that salvation is all of God, planned and purposed by God, and that man has nothing to to do with his own salvation. It's the only way that that can work. Now, I'll tell you what I want to do because of that. When I find out that I'm not just one person out here in the mass of all humanity that Christ didn't know anything about personally, he just said, I'm going to make a sacrifice and I hope somebody trusts me. It makes a big change in me when I know this, that when Christ went to that cross, he said, I'm going there for Mark Smith. And I'm going there for Brian Petro and Bet Petro and, and Jose and for, and for Lino. I'm going there for them. I have their names. I know who their names are. I'm dying for them. That makes a whole lot of difference to me. It makes me love him. So what do I want to do because of this? 
What Paul says, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ as his dear child. He loved me. He gave himself for me. He made a sacrifice that was well-pleasing to God, and God accepts me because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. So praise God, it didn't fail. It accomplished exactly what the Father intended for it to do. Now, do you see why I believe it? You see why I teach this? You can object to it if you want, but if you do, then please come to me and explain to me how it's better to have chance salvation, maybe salvation, uncertain salvation, indiscriminate salvation. How is that better than having perfect salvation and knowing that it's there? How's that better? Explain to me that. Not one drop of Christ's blood was wasted. It did what God intended for it to do. So the writer of that song said, Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures, Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, purest thou art. Come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image deep in my heart. And that's exactly the sentiment that Paul is trying to get across to us. When he says, be ye followers of God as dear children. When you learn this, when you know this, that's what you want to do. You want to follow him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we just thank you for this wonderful sacrifice that Jesus made. And how, as the scripture says, it was well-pleasing to you. Because, Father, you knew when Jesus went to that cross that he was going to do everything that you required of him. He was not going to leave anything undone. There was not one single person for whom you would shed your blood that they would not be fully redeemed and ransomed, reconciled, and become a part of your heavenly kingdom. There is no failure in what you've done for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you provide for us perfect salvation. Bless in this invitation tonight. Draw our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.